You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, joined us. Fanny Davis was a numbers runner in Detroit in the 1950s and 60s, long before we had things like the legal lottery. Running the numbers in Detroit allowed her to provide for her family, including private school educations that led to successful professions. What was the larger role, though, of the numbers runners in supporting the economy of black communities in Detroit and other major cities before the legal lottery took over? Bridgette Davis explores her mom's story and the story of numbers running in her book, The World According to Fannie Davis. Bridgette Davis, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. Yes, it's uh, great to have you back here at home in Detroit. Yes, I'm excited. <laughs> so let's start with uh, just explain for the listeners what the numbers was yes. and how your mom came to be involved in this. Right. The numbers are ubiquitous in black culture, and most black folks know about the numbers. They were essentially a precursor to the legal lottery. They were a thriving underground economy, actually, because many people were employed helping to keep this business running. And my mom was uh, very instrumental because she was a bookie and a banker in the numbers you know, business here in the city. She started out... Um, because she'd migrated north. She'd migrated from Nashville with my dad and my three oldest siblings. The same reason so many people became part of the Great Migration. She and my dad wanted to improve their lives, their financial lives. And my father thought he could find good work, you know, in the auto plants. And he did get a job at GM, but unfortunately he was last hired, first fired. His work was on again, off again. There was not any stability and Detroit was a rough place. It wasn't the South, but it had its own challenges. So, so uh, one of the things you've you've said there, I think, is is really really uh, poignant about Detroit. There are all of these stories uh, in most of our families, mm-hmm. uh, especially African Americans in this city, about that trip north, uh, yes. who came and why. Uh, usually, that story is about opportunity and and this idea that the North would provide more opportunity than there was in the South. Right. But but more often than I think a lot of people want to talk about or admit, that opportunity wasn't as plentiful as they thought it would be, wasn't as regular as they thought it would be. And uh, there was disappointment and, and poverty in the North, just like there had been in the South. That's right. In fact, in my parents' case, they came from a nurturing, supportive a pretty much healthy environment in Nashville. My mom's father was his own, he was an entrepreneur. They lived pretty well and comfortably. So imagine leaving your comfortable home where your family has been for generations, where you have an extended family of support and where the weather is nicer. And you come north thinking you're seeking a better situation and you are confronted with northern, northern racism and discrimination, and the idea that you're not welcome. They couldn't find adequate housing. They were paid an exorbitant amount of money for rent that um, really was in a really run-down tenement. My father, as I said, couldn't get this steady work. They were struggling. In fact, in my parents' case, poverty was the new thing in their lives when they got to Detroit. They were stunned 
they were stunned by the fact that they were in this situation. My mom suffered, they all suffered through it for two years. And so that's the point at which my mother said, I got to do something. I have to, I have to earn. I have to figure this out. I have to make a way out of no way. And so she gets involved in the numbers and, and talk about, uh, her entree to that to that world. What right. was that like? Well, she had been living um, on a street called Delaware. We all know that street. You know that street. <laughs> and it was, for me, an infamous street growing up because she didn't even like to mention it. She would say, it was, I don't want to talk about it. So for me, in my mind, Delaware, Delaware was this scary street mm-hmm. because that's where she experienced poverty with her children. And so she was living there. What she did notice is that all these folks around her were playing the numbers. Not for a lot of money even, but they were doing it, like, consistently. It's not as though she hadn't seen the numbers in Nashville. She had. The numbers had moved across the country, but she had not sort of been up close around it. And when she noticed that, you know, my mom was really smart. She thought, hmm, there's an opportunity here. I could actually take these people's bets. Why not? And that led her to do this incredible thing. She showed up in the middle of the night once at my Uncle John's door, her brother John. Fortunately, he had been living in Detroit for a few years. He was actually a horseman. He worked at the local racetrack. He actually went on to become one of the first African-American trainers in the country. But at the time, he had steady work. He was an exercise boy, as they called it. And so she knew he had some stability and means. And she just showed up at his door in the middle of the night. He said to to me, she woke me up and everything. (laughs) And she walked into his living room. She did not even take off her coat. And she said to him, John, I believe I can bank the numbers, but I just need $100. Can you loan me $100? Which in those days, of course, was a lot more than it is today. I mean, that's an unimaginable amount of money, really. Yes, and I tell people that was 1958. And right at the same time, Barry Gordy was borrowing $800 from his family fund to start Motown, just to give you a sense, right? So that $100 was a lot, and my uncle said he listened to her. Everything she said made sense. And he said, okay, Fanny, I've got it. I'll give it to you. And this was not, uh, this was not just, uh, oh, I'm going to open this business uh, and I need money. This was also, I'm going to do something that, that is a little bit dangerous. Yeah, the risk wasn't exciting to her. It was simply worth it. In her mind, it was risky to not figure out a way to care for your children. She had only the only options available to black women in that time in Detroit. There were only three. You take a low-rung job in the factories for less money than the men were making for long hours and really grueling work, or you do day work in white women's homes, or maybe you could, do, you could be a cleaning woman in an office building. Well, it's not as though my mom thought she was above all that. She just thought that is senseless because that's very little money for long hours that requires me to leave my children all day to raise themselves. That's not worth it. That to her was the risk. So the opportunity to bank the numbers, that seemed like a viable option. <laughs> right. This is a better this, <laughs> this is a better choice than these other yeah, things. Absolutely. Very simple, very simple calculation. Very simple calculation. So so what did a typical day look like for your mom when she's doing this? 
Yeah, it was interesting. She was on the phone a lot. My memory of her was when she had reached a point in the business where people called in their bets. I suspect in the early days when she really just got started and she had this penny business in the late 50s, early 60s, a lot of people probably came by and literally turned in their bets, their numbers to her physically on little pieces of paper. But by the time I have a cogent memory of her running her business, she's on that telephone (laughs) taking numbers throughout the day. Sometimes a customer would say, you know, Fanny, I like going fishing on Saturday morning. I like to turn my numbers in before I leave. So I'm going to call you at 530 a.m., okay? Yeah. What could she say? Right, right. I need (laughs) the money. Yeah, I mean, this is my business. This is what I do, and, and I'm reliable. And these are my customers, and I want them to know that they can depend on me. And and her success uh, in running this business, did it attract negative attention from other people who were involved in illegal activity in Detroit? The beauty of it is no, not at all. I never saw a crossover between the numbers and, say, drug trades or anything like that. The numbers was its own universe. And understand, people involved in this did not think of it as, uh, you know, something wrong. They thought this is a legitimate business that just happens to be illegal. That's how they all thought. Mm-hmm. That's how my mom thought. That's how I feel. And and um, did she ever have close calls with the law because it was uh, illegal. I mean, you're 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 at once. I think uh, a little nervous about you know other people running the numbers and people in il- other illegal businesses, but also right. trying to avoid the attention of the police. Right? Yeah, that was real. That was real. Um, and so she had all of these safeguards that she put in place. The biggest one was we all simply knew not to tell anyone. That's why it was such a big secret that we all kept diligently. And that's a hard thing to do, right? <laughs> you can't so talk hard, about actually, what your mother Steven. does. <laughs> no, it wasn't so hard. You're right. I mean, it was hard to not talk about her because I liked, I wanted to brag about her. But think about it. Did you really feel excited to tell people what your parents did for a living? Not really. I don't know. I feel like uh, I can remember in kindergarten, everyone bragging about what their parents did, like yeah. what their dads did. That was one of the things that always bothered me because I was like, well, my dad really just works in a in a hospital. Right. Uh, but these other people's dads were lawyers and yeah. doctors and things like that. I mean, when you're a little kid, you want to Well, I think it you sounds like you went to school with more that. upscale <laughs> folks. Because <laughs> when I, my memory is that actually, you know, it wasn't an unusual thing not to talk about it. It's, it is true that you usually knew what your friend's parents did because you could see, like, my best friend's mom and dad worked for the post office. You kind of knew that. You mm-hmm. saw them in their uniforms or whatever. So, yeah, you're right. But um, keeping that secret was just my normal. I didn't struggle to keep the secret. I knew. I knew, even though it wasn't talked about, that that was a way to protect her safety and therefore our livelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just was like, I will tell no one. And and talk about the success that your mom had doing this. I mean, you say it was a successful business. What does that mean in practical terms? Right. I try to look back as an adult and try to contextualize it. And my sense is that it was as though my mom ran a really healthy, small business. I can't put a dollar amount to it, right? But I would say it wasn't. It was enough to give us a, a really stable middle class, pushing into upper middle class <laughs> life. 
Yeah. And did that change your lives? Did that uh, uh, were you able to to do things that you couldn't do before when you were relying just on uh, on your father's work? Oh my goodness. I am fortunate that by the time I was born, my mom was already in business for a couple <laughs> years. So I only remember a good life. The, t- the, the joke in our family was that I came home to French provincial baby furniture. <laughs> Not the case for my sister only four years older because life had changed that drastically thanks to my mom's you know, efforts in the business, thanks to her, her livelihood. Yeah. Yeah, it was different. And and uh so for you growing up, uh talk about what Detroit was like uh at that time in 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 your neighborhood. I loved Detroit and I loved growing up here. Everything I remember about it is largely wonderful. And so I'm going to say as an aside, you know, I haven't lived in Detroit for many years, so it's always a disconnect for me hmm. as I move out there in the world, in New York in particular, and people say, where are you from? And I say, Detroit. I can see the assumptions in their faces. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you're, you're so wrong. One of my missions, I think, has been as a writer to really, in whatever capacity I'm writing in, to really push back against that assumption because my memories are real and true. I... Uh, my mom bought a family home for us on Broad Street right when I was just turning one. And that house, I can tell you, I'm looking at my nephew now, he can <laughs> tell you, the, the love we have for that house and what it meant to us, that was our symbol of life in the middle class. And this was a part of the city that, uh, that also, uh, my family, by the way, had moved into uh, in the late, 1950s uh, over near Russell Woods and and places like that, Tuxedo. I know exactly where that uh, that is. And my grandparents lived on Sturdivant near Dexter. Yes, Uh, right there. This was the the nexus, really, of black, middle-class achievement in in the city at that time. Absolutely. It was beautiful, that community. Um, And uh, those houses were really impressive. They, they had what we now call original details. <laughs> they were gorgeous. And that house in particular, it was a gorgeous four-bedroom colonial. And as the uh, seventh member of the household, I just felt its space, and I felt the freedom that I had there. It was really important. I think it really shaped my idea of what was possible in the world. And that pride, you could feel it. Not just my own family's pride, but our extended family, the community, our relatives from down south all felt some kind of way about Fanny having this gorgeous home. Mm. It, was a, it was a real achievement, actually. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bridgette Davis about her mother and running the numbers in Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Bridgette Davis. She's the author of The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. She is a professor of journalism and writing professions at the City University of New York. Um, Bridgette, I want to talk about um, 
the sort of cultural context of mm-hmm. what your mother was doing uh, and uh, the idea of doing something that is outside of the law in order to um, to achieve this sort of American dream that yes. is in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. That is, of course, very prevalent in, in the African-American community, uh, but it's common to lots of different cultures. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> lots of different immigrants to this country, for instance, yes. found themselves having to start out in something uh, illegal in order to, 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 to build a, a legitimate life, quote unquote. Right. But those things are seen really differently, I yes. feel like. Uh, mm-hmm. When we talk about them in terms of African-Americans, there's a, there's a, a seediness or a, mm-hmm. a negativity that attaches to that discussion that doesn't always uh, attach to the, it's, it's more glamorized when, yep. uh, it's, when it's immigrant populations that do you're that. Very, you're very right. I mean, there are a lot of things I think about that. Uh, one of the things that finally gave me the courage to tell my story and let me just pause and say that I wasn't not telling because I was ashamed or embarrassed. I was not telling because I didn't want other people to make these assumptions about my mother or about our family that I knew were wrong. I didn't think for a long time it was worth the risk of people's misunderstanding. So that kept me quiet. But what I finally realized was it's important to tell because this isn't anything at all to be ashamed of, and people need to know, and they need to figure out how they feel about it. And what helped a lot was just finally stopping to think about someone as simple as Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family. Great example. Okay, it hasn't been proven, but there are rumors that he really made his money as a bootlegger. And during Prohibition. During Prohibition. Someone selling alcohol when you, exactly. and running it around uh, when you couldn't sell it legally. Exactly. And, and knowing that story finally gave me the courage. I thought, you know what? What do people think of What's Joe Kennedy today? Right. What's the difference? So he, here he was doing something that was quote-unquote illegal, and then one day the very thing he was selling became legal. I thought, perfect analogy. Because anyone who wants to judge the numbers needs to explain then why. <laughs> tell me why the lottery is yeah, okay. Tell me why the lotteries are thriving <laughs> in almost every state in this country. Right? Yeah. So that really helped me. Helped me to get a little braver. Yeah. And, and do you find... Uh, that people's reaction to your story is different because they're thinking of it in in those cultural terms? I mean, are are you hearing from people who seem to look down a little more on what your mom was doing than than maybe being a bootlegger (laughs) during Prohibition? Yeah, it's so incredible what has happened. Here I was holding the secret for decades. (laughs) (laughs) I finally tell it. You know, I've been really fortunate to have some really strong, you know, media around the book, and I'm grateful for that. And it turns out people are inspired. They're fascinated, right? (laughs) They are so fascinated. And I do get a lot of emails, which I guess you would call fan mail today, from people, and, and let me say, across the cultural spectrum, all kinds of people telling me their stories their family histories and what their parents did or grandparents did. It's like, wow, this is truly the quintessential American way. Yeah. You know, and that was something that's been very satisfying. That, and let me, I, I will point out that I did work very diligently to write a book that was filled with cultural context. I wanted to wrap my mother's story around a sense of place and time so you understood where she found herself 
given where we were in the, in the culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful that that added to people's sense of um, really admiring what she did. Yeah. 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 Uh, and getting back to sort of the, the, the immediate cultural context of what your mother was doing, the numbers uh, weren't just a business no. uh, in places like Detroit. They were part of the culture. They helped build uh, an economy that, that, um, that moved African-Americans forward. But there was also this kind of, uh, I feel like uh, there was this kind of connection mm-hmm. that people were, uh, were able to feel with one another because of the numbers, you know, did you play your number today? Yeah. I hit my number last week. Right. Uh, that kind of thing really uh, became, you know, I'm not born until 1970, but but I remember people talking about the the days when the number was the you 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 wanted to hit your number. It was such a cultural kind of like um, sort of communal experience that it's hard to get people to understand if you didn't live it, but I did. All of that was so rewarding just to see not only the fact that people admired my mother because she was um, a really upstanding and honest and straightforward person in this unregulated business. They could count on her. So there was that piece, just to be able to admire someone who was, in their mind, really helping them to have a shot and getting a little you know, windfall now and then, that made her a pillar of the community, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> right, it right. really did. But then also the piece that people don't really understand beyond the communal piece and the like way that you socialized around the numbers. You shared your dreams. Mm. We can talk about the dream book if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you looked them up. You talked about what you felt like playing. You shared the excitement of winning. You talked about the one you just missed. All that was just a way to really uh, sort of like be neighborly with one another. Really, yeah. that's what it was. Talk it was about a, the dream book. Talk that's, about the dream book, yeah. yeah. The dream book is this incredible um, publication because they have existed since the 19th century. Many different iterations of them and many different people stepped in to publish them. <laughs> so that's a side business, actually. Right. In my household growing up, there were two that dominated, the Three Wisemen Dream Book and the Red Devil. <laughs> and those were the two that my mom had as her reference guides. So what is a dream book? It's really an encyclopedic reference book for that assigns a three-digit number to anything, pretty much. Anyone could dream, any person, any place, anything, any experience. So if you dreamed about fish, you could go to your dream book and look up what it played for, and there would be a three-digit number. And that should be your number, right? That's your number that day because you're <laughs> feeling it. You know, I talk a little bit in the book about just the sort of um, the sort of idea that there was something kind of magical and mystical and maybe even spiritual around this idea of playing your number because numbers have a, you know, numerology, is a thing, and numbers do have a kind of meaning beyond the literal one. So if you dreamed about your dad, you'd been thinking about him, you've been missing him, and then you dream about him, maybe you play his name Mm -hmm. that you looked up in the dream book, and it means something to you. And if it comes out, that number, and you hit, maybe this is your dad helping you from beyond. People believed that. Well, and that's a very important part of African-American culture across lots of different things, right? That's not just the numbers. That is, 
uh, part of that sort of spiritual base uh, that that uh, that we have yeah. that that sustained us through you know uh, through one of the worst experiences in human history. Right. I tell people dreams mean a lot of things to black people. There was no coincidence that Dr. King said, I have a dream Mm -hmm. because we understood it on many levels. Yes, the American dream. And yes, the the hope, the dream, the hope that your life can be better. But the literal dreams at night, all of those things. King understood black culture beautifully. (laughs) You know, he knew the metaphors he was speaking in because it resonates for us on a lot of levels. And that comes from Africa. I mean, that's the African tradition, the power of dreams and how spirit speaks to you. You know, so numbers are so much more than just going to a party store and playing, <laughs> you know, your sort of numbers with the, the, the you know, the operator there. Yeah. It's so much more than that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I wonder uh, when the lottery becomes legal mm-hmm. and the numbers eventually go away because they've got competition, legitimate competition, um, how that changes Black culture, right? Uh, how that changes this uh, this connection yeah. that people had through through the numbers. I have something to confess: the numbers have not gone away. They haven't gone away. <laughs> that's right. They, to this day, yeah, it's a little not. it's different than it it's was. It's different. I'll right. tell you what happened. My mom was instrumental in this. Um, when the numbers, when the lottery became legal, initially for the first five years, it wasn't an issue. Because the lottery originally in Michigan was a weekly drawing. You could not even choose right. your own numbers. Right. So this that was everyday lotto thing yeah. is a is it, a modern was, incarnation. Right. Yeah. And so that was not competition because folks wanted a daily experience. <laughs> I, I, what am I gonna do on Wednesday, right? <laughs> right. So there was no competition. But then in nineteen seventy seven, when you were seven <laughs> <laughs> Things did change. Yeah. The Michigan uh, Lottery Commission got around to its real goal. Its goal had always been to be in competition with the numbers. They finally figured out how they could do it, and they started something called the Daily Three. That was a complete ripoff of the numbers. Yes. Complete. And they started offering the same benefits. They used the same slogans in their <laughs> ads. Got a dream? Play yeah. it tomorrow. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, it was crazy how they took over that whole concept so but that didn't stop the numbers that didn't stop my mom's business she was in business for 34 years Mm -hmm. so when that happened first she thought oh will my customers stay loyal to me they did for a while but you know it really finally made it so hard to compete with the legal lottery ah that broadcast every night on tv that announced the winning numbers that was so much more elegant than the convoluted system that the street numbers had. Right. You didn't have a way to broadcast that. You, you couldn't to... broadcast it. You couldn't always know exactly at the same time what the winners were. Sometimes the winners changed. You couldn't always trust whomever it was in charge of deciding the winning numbers. So there was all of that. Folks wanted to just know their number. <laughs> they wanted to know what won. And so when my mother realized, I can't compete with that, she decided if you can't beat them, join them. And she did this brilliant thing. She said, okay, I'm going to use the legal lottery number as my win- as the winning numbers for my numbers business. Right. It's just mimic what they're doing. Right? Yeah. I'll uh, use, they, they took my, they took our <laughs> game. Right. I'm going to take their numbers right. for our game. Yeah. And that saved her business. 
Yeah. It saved her business. Yeah. yeah. When, when you think about um, uh, your mother's business and the way it pushed your family forward, the mm-hmm. way it sort of sustained uh, a community, do you see echoes of that anywhere today? Have we lost that? Or maybe another way to think of it is, have we gotten to a place where we don't need that as African-Americans? That's such a great question. I would like to believe the latter. I would like to believe we don't need it anymore. But I I really kind of mourn the loss of that economy. I don't know that we would need that exactly, the numbers replicated or some similar system. But what we lost... I think fundamentally what we lost was keeping those dollars in our community turning over many times. We lost that. Yeah. How do we get that back? I don't know. Well, when you, and you, of course, there are underground economies that exist in, in all cities still. I, I think they're different uh, in that they are associated with things that uh, you think of the drug economy, oh, yeah, for yeah, instance, yeah. right? I mean, that's not helping. No. It's, it's not a product that's helping anybody, but uh, of course, the dollars there. Uh, uh, flow differently they too. They flow differently. It's not building. Exactly. It's not building what it should. No. Uh, for I mean, a, an underground economy I think has a legitimate purpose in most communities. Mm-hmm. It's not doing what it should. For it's our. not. And I try every chance I get to make it clear. My mother despised drugs. She never smoked. She never drank. She just didn't believe in it. And her idea was that. You must never equate what I'm doing to what drug dealers do. They are devastating people's lives. They're preying on the community. Preying on people's addictions. She's like, this is not what I'm doing here. And, you know, I like to share also the fact that um, she was com- she was operating out of a, a actual tradition. In fact, people don't know this, but the, a man named John Roxborough was essentially the man who brought the numbers to Detroit. Mm-hmm. He heard about it from the guy who invented it in Harlem and he was like, I'm bringing that to we Detroit. Need this, we right? need that. And he was an upper class guy. He was part of the black bourgeoisie, but he did this. And the other thing that John Roxborough did, he decided to invest in Joe Lewis. John Roxborough was his manager. He put all that money that he made in the numbers into Joe Lewis. Into something that was going to uh, build the community, uh, he right? He made Joe Lewis a heavyweight champion of yeah. the world. Yeah. I mean, meaning he backed him. Obviously, Lewis's talent did it. Sure. But together they were race men, and they understood what they were doing. That's why that fist is downtown, because <laughs> people understood that Joe Lewis knew he was pushing back and fighting against racism as much as he was breaking down barriers and just being good at what he did. And I always say, will we have Joe Lewis without the numbers? I'm going to say no. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, Bridget Davis, author of The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, the community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.